Hello, everyone. Morning. Sooner we get started, the sooner you get to the chili. My goodness, wow. Good to see everyone. All right. Um, there was something I was going to say that Seth said that I... But one is nobody forgets about Thanksgiving, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, yeah. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm happy to see all y'all. We're, uh, we're winding things down here with Genesis. This is the last one, um, the end, and then we will move on to uh, uh, new and exciting topics as we start the new year um, after Advent. Um, Hope everyone's doing well. It's clearly very warm out right now. I'm a little annoyed. I, I like. I look forward to the cooler weather. And, um, it's really warm outside. All right. Um, so as I mentioned, this wraps up uh, Genesis. This is going to cover the last couple chapters. Well, actually, my subject, you know, my area subject is the last two chapters. I'm not covering all that. Um, just where kind of Bill left off on in chapter 48, the four focus focuses on. Um, uh, Joseph's kids, uh, Manasseh and um, Ephraim, and he takes them to Israel to be blessed. And uh, uh, <clears throat> and uh, Israel kind of makes those those two children kind of like his own, which rounds up the twelve tribes of Israel. Um, which is also why we don't have a tribe of Joseph; it's his two children. Uh, and then when he goes to bless them, uh, jo- uh, Joseph puts. The older one, the older one is Manasseh on Israel's right, and then Ephraim on the left. But then, when he goes to bless him, he crisscrosses his hand, which I guess was significant. It, Joseph gets upset and it's like trying to move his hands, and and he says, "No, no, the the, the younger is going to be greater than the younger uh, than the older one," which you kind of see play out because Ephraim's a lot more referenced, a lot more as you move along. In the chapter for this uh, for this uh, Sunday is forty nine and fifty. 49 is focused on Israel's blessing of all of his children. And then in 50, we see Jacob or Israel passing away. And then as, his, uh, as requested, his bones are taken back to Canaan to be placed in the cave that Abraham bought, you know, next to the field. Uh, and then Pharaoh goes with all of his officials. But after he died, jo- uh, Joseph's brothers get, get nervous or get scared because they figure, well, now that dad's gone, Joseph will enact his revenge against me. Uh, and then he says this response, which is what he said before. Um, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he assured them and spoke kindly to them. Then we see Joseph passing away. Uh, and then he drops out of the picture. Um, I always thought it was kind of interesting. You know, Joseph, as it turned out, was actually a rather really righteous person. Um, and you always think, well, you know, God is gonna, should run with that. You know, he's the righteous one of all the brothers. However, on the contrary, uh, the focus is actually more the brothers as it kind of plays out, or at least the tribes, particularly Judah. And it is from Judah that we get the more prominent people in the Bible, you know, David, Boaz, Ruth, Rahab, and more importantly from the tribe of Judah, we get Jesus. So the question to ask is, why Judah? 
Why does the most significant event, and that is Jesus, come from Judah, particularly when you consider his background? So let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this wonderful day. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us all here. Uh, thank you for this time that we could uh, he, uh, study your word and hear from you, but also have a good time of fellowship, Lord. Pray that you bless uh, this, uh, the, bless your word, that we uh, pray, Lord, we hear from you uh, and bless our day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, as mentioned, uh, chapter 49 is really where the blessings come from. Uh, and here's kind of a summary, and I don't really go too in-depth on this, because uh, I really want to focus only on Judah, because what I think was written about Judah is actually significant. But, you know, <clears throat> Jacob goes down each one of the sons, uh, and they have first, you know, Reuben. Uh, he, he loses the prominence of the firstborn, right, because he slept with one of Jacob's wives. In Genesis here, it says, uh, Genesis, Genesis uh, 49.4, it says, Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. For you went up unto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. It's pretty harsh words. You will no longer excel. And then you have Simon and Levi. I always, I always think these two are kind of fascinating um, because they're kind of, they're, of all their group together. Um, and it says, these are not ones to seek counsel from because of their anger. Uh, the passage says, cursed be their anger, so fierce in their fury, so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. You know, they uh, were the ones that went in and murdered the whole town um, over the, the rape of, of Dinah. And you think about that, it's pretty, it's pretty brutal to go through and kill that many people. Um, and so I guess you just don't want to make them angry at you. Uh, and then you have Zebulun, which says, you know, he'll live by the seashore, which actually is not really true. So it's a much longer discussion about maybe what that means. Issachar will submit to forced labor. Dan will provide justice. Gad will attack a band of raiders. Asher's location will provide great food. So that's the place you want to be. Um, Naphtali will located in a nice place. Joseph's blessing is very long, and I'm not going to get into it because, um, you know, again, he was always his favorite. And then Benjamin is described as a ravenous wolf. And I always think maybe that's uh, fitting since it's uh, from ben the tribe of Benjamin that you get Saul. But looking specifically at Judah and how prophetic it is when it talks about Judah and, you know, what his offspring or what will be, will be made of Judah. Um, in fact, the description tends to be more a description of Jesus than it is of Judah. So you have here, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from your prey, my son, like a lion. He couches, he crouches and lies down like a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk." So one of the things about the blessing of Judah, it is uh, much longer than the others, except for the, the blessing of Joseph. It is predominantly longer. Um, Israel makes use of the second person plural, which he only does for Reuben. So it's almost like he's talking directly at Judah. Um, <clears throat> and it also is interesting is that the term praise is used in uh, the blessing of him 
which is not only distinguishes him from his brothers, but it actually distinguishes him from other people because it's, it is rarely directed at humans in the Bible, which even more so points to the fact that is he really talking to Judah or is he talking eventually about who Jesus will become? When it describes the suppression of the neck, that is actually like, uh, is a, you know, it's a term to mean that enemy was overcome. Of course, uh, the question arises, well, who is the enemy if we're talking about Jesus? The enemy is the devil. It is also interesting that Jacob mentions his brothers bowing down to him, especially when he was so upset when Joseph mentioned all of them bowing down to them. Um, in verse 9, it talks about a lion, um, almost like the growth of a lion, as he will rise up uh, bigger than the rest of his brothers. The, symbol of, the lion is a symbol of royalty. Um, it's also a symbol of David and the Messiah. And, and, you know, in fact, in society in general, lions are viewed as fierce. Um, one of the things that occurred to me as I was thinking about this is, you know, if you think about the Wizard of Oz, what is the lion called? The lion is called the Cowardly Lion. Not the lion, the Cowardly Lion. Why? Because lions are anything but cowardly. So we need to distinguish that lion. And that's the view people have of lion. And, and it's often used as a description in the Bible. We see actually Jesus described in Revelation 5, 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Um, uh, actually, moving on to uh, in verse 10, it talks about a scepter. The New American Commentary that I use uh, says that Judah is portrayed as a ruler with a scepter, and the scepter symbolizes monarchy. Um, that will be Judah's inheritance. The kingdom will be a permanent possession uh, and will not depart from Judah. Um, and so in the Psalms, Judah is described as God's scepter. Wait, did I say? Oh, wait. Oh, we've got back to that. Here it is. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah, my scepter. These verses taken by themselves... Um, could mean anything. However, when you consider how you know, the tribe of Judah went forward in the history of the tribe, you will see that the voice really does point to the Messiah. Uh, we also see this particularly you know, in the first chapter of Matthew, where Jesus' genealogy is laid out, right? All the way, actually it goes back to Abraham, but it goes to Judah all the way through. You know, Joseph, uh, Jesus' father, all the way to Jesus, the Messiah. It lands on Matthew 1.16. And Jacob... Well, this is just the end of the genealogy. I didn't put the whole thing. It's pretty long. Um, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ or the Messiah. Well, to better understand why God choo chooses Judah, we kind of have to go back in his history. And we've done this a little bit before, but we're also going to talk about some other aspects of his, of his history. Because I think the key about this is, is to, again to ask the question, why Judah? Why not Joseph? Why does he pick the bad one to bring forth the Messiah? And I think this is important because it's important for us because I love you all, but I don't think anybody is quite as good as Joseph. I'm sure some of you might be close. But generally, we're probably identifying with more of the bad parts, particularly some of you have had some rough lives where you might identify a little bit more than we would even feel comfortable, perhaps. Um, so... Um, 
Where do we see Judah? We kind of see him first. Um, he's the what? He's the fourth son of Israel, right? The first is Reuben, who fails. We know that. And then you have Simon, Simeon and Levi, who you know, got really angry and have their anger problems. Um, now, while Joseph is the major focus of kind of the, this latter part of Genesis, Judah is more also kind of prominent. <clears throat> and what we see is someone who's not a good guy. Um, through various variants, and he be, but he becomes the person God wants us to be. So the first time we see him uh, is that we initially distinguish him himself when Joseph, when they capture Joseph. So what is the scene here? You know, Joseph. We talked about this before. Comes up in the, the really colorful coat. Says hi to his brothers. They seize him, throw him in the cistern. He's pleading for his life. Um, and then they decide to go down to sit down to have a casual meal and decide what they were going to do with Joseph. Decide if they will take his life while he's crying out to them from the cistern. Then they see a caravan off in the distance. And Judah gets an idea. Right? I've, I've mentioned this before last time I talked about it. He says, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother. Our own flesh and blood, his brothers agreed. And so, in one sense, you could think this is, oh, how nice. But then you kind of have to realize that he was going to kill, they were all going to kill Joseph. Uh, and, but figures, yeah, he's family. Why don't we just sell him instead? You know, and you always think, gosh, Judah, the, the mark of compassion. So that's where Judah we see kind of really the most prominent the first time. As, you know, coming up with this idea to sell Joseph as opposed to killing him. But next you get this really long history of Judah and Tamar. I said I don't want to go there yet. Uh, it focuses largely on his family and how, uh, <clears throat> you know, he goes down and he lives. He, he decides to go live at a distance or go visit a friend. And so he goes to visit this friend. Uh, and then he meets this uh, Canaanite man named Shua. Judah marries the daughter of Shua. Uh, we actually learn, uh, we, do, we never learn of his wife's name, which means she probably wasn't important. But over the subsequent years, she gives birth to three children, Ur, Onan, and Selah. Now, when Ur the oldest was of age, he finds a wife for him, and it's Tamar. Bible tells us that Ur was wicked in the Lord's sight. So God put him to death. We don't know what he did and why he was wicked. But as the custom was... The, since he had no children, she would be given to child number two, son number two, to bear children for the older brother who has now passed away. Uh, it was considered the duty of the younger brother. Therefore, Tamar was given to Onan, but Onan knew the child would not be his. He does not follow through with what is required to do when oh, the children are gone. So he doesn't uh, complete the task that would require them to have children. You can read it yourself. Um, and it's, you know, as I've mentioned before, the Bible's always kind of pornographic, right? Um, and so he doesn't follow through. And the Lord gets angry with him. The Bible tells us this is considered wicked in the Lord's sight. So he puts him to death. So the Lord puts him to death. And then... Um, <clears throat> You know, when you kind of look at it, you always, I always wondered, and I, 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 is that what, what could they, you know, one is what made the oldest son so wicked that the Lord would actually put him to death? 
And it also always still shocks me that the fact that the younger son would not fulfill his duty was also considered wicked enough that the Lord would not, uh, Lord put him to death. And what, what some speculate is that the younger realized that, the, that his, with his brothers gone, his inheritance would be more, and he did not want to share it. Um, you know, and it just gets back to kind of original sin, selfishness, you know, looking at myself, not caring about others, only caring about myself. Judah then fears, though, that, that Tamar is cursed. So um, he decides that he didn't want to give her to his third son. Um, and he decide, tells her, go live with your, um, with your dad, and then when the old, younger one's old enough, I will send for you. Unfortunately, a little bit, you see here the, you know, the, the, the beliefs around Judah are, are impacting him more, this idea that somebody might be cursed. He wasn't really trusting God. Um, but he has no intentions, as it turns out, to follow through and, and give, um, allow Tamar to marry his younger son. After many years, Judah's wife dies. And after time of agreement, he goes to see this friend again, this uh, <clears throat> friend apparently that wasn't a good influence on him, um, and when Tamar, Tamar hears that Judah is on her way, she devises a plot to ensnare him uh, she, <clears throat> to, uh, because he did not keep her promise to her. So she removes the widow clothes, puts on a veil, stands near the road. Judah sees her thinking she was a prostitute. He decides to relieve his tensions. I guess it's a long trip, so to speak. Um, they agree that they will that he will give her a young goat, but he doesn't have it. So he tells her, "Give me that. Uh, give me your seal, the cord, and the staff." Um, and I also kind of always interesting that he didn't recognize her. I go, "Well, come on, you know, you've dealt with this woman a couple of times over. He didn't recognize who she was." Oh well. Um, after Tamar becomes pregnant, and at the same time, Judah attempts to send the goat to her. He sends it through his friend, but his friend learns that, that people around him says, well, there was never a shrine prostitute at that location. Three months later, she's pregnant, and Judah finds out, and he's angry because, um, I don't know, it's, I find it interesting. He's angry, but she's not really his daughter-in-law anymore, but I guess he feels like he, you know, he must uh, take care of this situation. So he says that she should be brought out and have her burned to death. So think about what he's saying. It is okay for him to sow his wild oats when he wants, but if she, uh, but if she were to do it, she must be put to death. And worse yet, she's not only going to be put to death, she must be burned to death. You know, what kind of person demands this kind of thing? You know, it's also a lot of hypocrisy, right? Because not only um, uh, it's Joda to do what he wants, you know, like he can do what he wants, but others cannot. It's the idea also of treating women differently than man. Men, we see this in the woman caught in adultery, as people have mentioned before. It's always the, it's the woman that is brought out, but the man isn't there either. It's the woman that's brought to Jesus. We also see it in other uh, aspects of society where people feel uh, that, uh, that maybe a daughter that has been violated should be put to death as opposed to um, the perpetrator should be run after. But this kind of speaks a lot into Judah's character um, in that he, he thinks that somebody should be killed through burning. And he, kind of that level of cruelty that really shocks me and what kind of person he is. Of course, Tamar is much shrewder. 
when brought out, she sent a message to Judah. She says, I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Then the Bible says, Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't even give her my son, Selah. So she gives birth to, two, uh, birth to twin sons, Perez and uh, Zerah. We see a couple of things here, though, from this. is that One is that the line of the Messiah goes through Tamar. It doesn't go through any, through any of Judah's other sons, which I think is fascinating. That God decided that the, that the line would go through her. It, you know, it gets back to God taking a difficult situation or taking, you know, a sin and kind of redeeming the situation. Two, um, <clears throat> this is where we start to see some change in Judah. He starts to realize that he's, not, you know, he needs to, you know, hopefully that he needs to change, that he isn't the person he should be. So that's, that's his story with Tamar. The story kind of reverts back in the Bible to really the, the story of, of the brothers going back and forth to um, Israel, going back and forth to Egypt to get food. And we see what I would say as Judah as the leader. Um, and so what has is when the brothers made their first trip to, Judah, uh, to Egypt to buy food, if you remember the story, they go... Um, and, and none of them are really prominent. They're all talking to Joseph, and, and um, you know they get the food and they come back. Uh, <clears throat> uh, but if you remember that, is that when the when they went the first time, Joseph accuses them of being spies. Um, as a guarantee, he keeps Simeon in Egypt and requires that they must bring Benjamin back with them the next time, else they won't get food. Uh, now, Jacob has no intention of letting Benjamin go. Uh, and he seems content, I always think of this, he seems content in leaving his son Simeon back in Egypt. Well, he can stay there, but you're not taking Benjamin. Uh, and they kind of waited a long time. If you read this story there, he takes a long time before they really are in a desperate situation before he sends them back for food. Because Judah does make a comment like, we could have been back and forth a couple times already. Um, but, wait, you know, they waited and they waited. Um, <clears throat> however, at some point, they need food. So Judah takes the initiative to try to convince Jacob to allow Benjamin to go. In order to convince his father, Jacob, uh, to allow Benjamin to travel with him, jo Jacob, or I mean, sorry, Judah guarantees his safety. He says, I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him if you do not bring him back and set him here before you. I will bear the blame for you for, uh, before you all my life. Now, I find that somebody may, if you looked at this pastor, may go, well, wait a minute. A little previous this, Reuben actually did promise a guarantee, but what he guaranteed was his sons. He says, if I don't bring Benjamin back, you can kill my sons. <clears throat> Which I always think, God, Reuben, that's... Really? Uh, you're going to just, like, kill your sons? Plus, so the difference here is that Reuben offered his sons. Judah offered himself. All right? It's a difference there. So Jacob relents. All is well. Now, everything, as we know from the story, all is well until they're on their way back. Joseph sends soldiers. The silver cup has been stolen. They open their sacks, and everyone looks inside, and then it's in Benjamin's sack. 
Now, of course, we know that Joseph had the cup placed in the sack. It's a ruse. However, the brothers don't know this. Um, from their perspective, Benjamin is a dead man. And if they, if they don't return with Benjamin, their father likely will die. So they rush back to Joseph's house and plead for Benjamin's life. But it is Judah who's the one that speaks for them all. I find the passage interesting. It says, well, um, Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers, so he's already now distinguished from the brothers, came in, and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, what is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? What can you, we say to my Lord, Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found, who was found, uh, found to have the cup. All right. <clears throat> Here we see Judah, a changed man. He's recognized and admitting their guilt of selling Joseph. Uh, when Joseph insists that it must only be Benjamin who will stay, Judah pleads directly with him. Judah asks to speak with Joseph directly, where Judah replays what has happened up to this point. Judah points out that Joseph had asked about their father. He kind of goes back in the history. You know, this is what happened the first time, right? You know, you asked about our dad. You asked about our brother. They told him that their dad, they had a dad and a brother, Benjamin, explaining that they had a aged father, and there was a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he's the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Judah remind, uh, Joseph, uh, <clears throat> remind, uh, reminded that he, Joseph, insisted that they bring their brother, and when they said their father would die if Benjamin left, Joseph insisted that they must return forth Benjamin, or they will not receive food. Judah then explained that their father wanted them to return for more food and that they had to remind their father they couldn't return without Benjamin. Judah explains to Joseph that their, uh, that their father responded, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, He surely ha has been torn to pieces, and I, will not have, I, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too and harm comes to him, you will bring my cray head down to the grave in misery. Judah insists saying, so, so now if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy is not there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. At this moment, we see Judah make the ultimate sacrifice. He moves from leader to the one willing to sacrifice himself. He responds and says, Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, If I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain there as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. Judah is a story of redemption. It goes from being a despicable human being to one who recognizes sin and then to one willing to give his life for another. This is also the story of Genesis. 
as well as the story of the Bible. The Bible is about God's plan to redeem us, to take us, uh, take us sinful people and make us righteous in his eyes. <clears throat> as we wind things up here in, uh, uh, with Judah and Genesis, it's important to kind of review some of the themes and how they are significant um, in the story of Judah. As I said back at the beginning, when we started this, I said Genesis is the foundation for it all. It's the foundation for the Bible. It is where we learn about God and how he deals with us. It is in Genesis that we see the beginning of God's plan to save us. So what are some of the things that we learned in Genesis? Well, one is God as creator. Um, you know, and then also he was, um, he says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. But <clears throat> we also see God as creator of systems. So either God created things or he created systems that create, like procreation. But another thing that comes out in Genesis is that we are part of the process. Um, I always, uh, we see this story in Adam. The Bible says, And no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. The Lord took the man, put him in the garden to work and take care of it. We also see this from this, um, we see this in the life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, um, <clears throat> where we see that, uh, as well as their sons, where they are, that despite their faults, God is using them as part of his plan. God is not just saying, well, don't worry, I'll do this. He says, no, you're going to do this, and yes, you are messed up, yes, you're going to make mistakes, but you're going to be part of that plan, and you're going to go do things that, that bring about my, uh, my plan for the world. This is important because it is not about God, it's not about God do, doing things, it is about God doing things through us, and that's what, that's the lesson for us is that God is going to use us to carry out His plan. We also see that sin enters the world. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in His heart, "Never again will I curse the ground because of a man, even though every inclination of His heart is evil from childhood. Never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done." Uh, so we, you know, our hearts are evil. We're selfish. We keep reliving that original sin of selfishness of look at me first. And, we, and that's a struggle. I would say that as a believer, it's always a struggle. I'm not always wanting to put myself first above everybody else and above God. Uh, <clears throat> but another thing that I always love about this is um, God's patience. How much it shows me throughout the book of Genesis how patient God is. Um, God, is uh, <clears throat> God is patient not only with his plan. God's willing to take many years to plan things out. After Genesis, it goes hundreds of years before God kind of interacts again. We see long periods of time where life goes on. God is content with things unfolding slowly. But he's also very patient with us. And I remember from the story of Abraham, you know, God interacted with Abraham first when he was 75, but then it was 35 or so, at least I figured, between when he first interacted with him to where, where Abraham trusted God enough to sacrifice his son. The guy that Abraham was at 75 is not the same guy that he was later. He went through a series of events where God continued to work in his life, continued to put things in his path, and he continued to grow from those experiences, and he became the person God wanted him to be. <clears throat> this is important for us, and we see this too in the story of Judah too. 
really bad dude that God, you know, kind of transforms through a series of events. In a lot of ways, I always feel like, in some ways, you know, well, then God put things in my life. And I think God does that. But I think sometimes God doesn't have to put anything in our life. Because we're still going to do something really stupid. And God goes, I can use that. Because you're going to do something really dumb, and you're going to be really selfish. But I'll use that to teach you and allow you to grow. What, why is this important? Because sometimes, we, you, know, you know, if you're like me, a little bit of an overachiever, you're always like, well, I, I need to be better. I need to be better. I need to be better. And I have to realize that, you know, I need to be patient with myself. Because guess what? God's patient with me. I need to just trust that God is going to get me to where God wants me to be. And that part of the problem is, is because I can't change overnight. I am who I am. Things are ingrained. And it takes a while for things to get out there. And the other thing that I learned, I've learned, too, is... God isn't like a genie in a, in, a, in a lamp where he snaps his finger and, oh, you know, like, I always think of like Aladdin when I think of this. You know, he goes, I, I, I can't make you love somebody, right? Well, God doesn't snap his finger and says, oh, you know, I'm going to make you more loving suddenly. No, you're going to learn how to be more loving. And so that's going to take time. Um, we see this God's unfolding plan, which was, um, I, I use the term God is kind of getting us back to Eden. God's will for us is to get us back to Eden, not literally, but back into fellowship with him. And the story begins in Genesis, and it unfolds throughout, you know, the Bible, the Old and New Testament. But we also here have the idea of a savior. Um, one is that, you know, I mentioned the snake's head at the beginning. It says, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all this livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So it's always was kind of a reference to, to, to Jesus crushing the, the head of the devil. But we also see this um, really played out in uh, the two lives of Joseph and Judah. So they were both kind of messiah, you know, kind of represented the Messiah. On the one hand, Joseph was the Savior. He represented that. He came and saved. Where Judah represents the sacrifice. The Messiah will sacrifice his life for us all so that we might be with God, so that we might um, have forgiveness of our sins and we might be made whole. And the last thing is really it's a story of redemption. Um, overall, bringing us back uh, despite our sin. God chooses Judah because it is God's way. Most people will likely thought Jesus would come from Joseph, considering how good he was. In addition, he was the example of Christ as Savior. However, Judah is the representative of a different aspect of Christ, that of sacrifice. In addition, it was from Judah that we see God's work. If Judah were standing here, you may say something like, well, not me. Are you, are you sure you want to pick me? You know, Joseph is the guy. But God says, no, Judah is the guy. It is through Judah that we see the themes of Genesis play out. We see God's patience. Judah is a bad guy and God works on him. And we see that patience play out. He allows the experiences of Judah to mold him into the person God wants. It also shows how God works with us. God is, you know, as I mentioned, not a genie, but he doesn't snap his fingers. He gives us freely, he gives us free will, allows us to make decisions, and he uses those experiences to teach us and mold us into the person he wants. Um, <clears throat> he chooses Judah because he is going to show that it is God who does it. Um, it is the same for us. He takes us and makes us the person he wants to be. 
In closing, I want to just kind of finish with, you know, um, some people, I, I don't know where people are at, and, you know, a lot of people are followers of Christ. But, you know, every, you know, one is I want to make sure that people really know what that means to be a follower of Christ. I have something up there called, uh, it's just they call it Romans Road because it kind of goes through the plan of salvation, and it's all in Romans. Um, but, you know, some people come from difficult uh, situations, and sometimes you think, you know, you're not worthy. And we want to know that God loves you no matter what, um, whether it's you're here or if you're watching online, uh, that God wants to know you in a personal way. And so, really, this is the plan of salvation, Romans 3.23, that says that we're all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It also tells us that because of that sin, the result is dead. We all deserve it. But the gift of God is eternal life. And the, the, that term gift is important. Because we have to know that God gives it freely. It's not something that we earn at all. Um, God demonstrated his love with us that we were sinners Christ died for us. That's always such a, a powerful statement because that meant that while you were turned against God, God still loved you and died for you. And then we learn that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Um, and it is, it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And last thing, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be uh, saved. So some of you, there may be people that have not made that commitment, that want to make that commitment. Now is the time. If you want to talk to somebody, you know, here at the church, there are people that are willing to talk to you about what that means. But as I close in prayer, I mean, this is a perfect time for someone to make that commitment. And then we will go finish out with the singing. Oh. And uh, you can eat chili. Um, let's, let's bow our heads. Father, I just want to thank you, Lord, for this time that you brought us here. I want to thank you for your message. I want to thank you for the story of Judah and the plan of redemption and salvation that, that, that shows through that entire life and, and really as it plays out in the Bible. We want to thank you, Lord, that you died for, uh, that Jesus died for our sins on the cross that we might have life and have it abundantly. Uh, and Lord, if there's someone here that wants to make that commitment, we pray that they do that now, Lord. Uh, we pray that we take the things that we have learned today, apply it to our lives, and bring us back safely next week. In your name, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.